bum bum bottom 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 bum b
is wonderful to me. Yeah. And uh, I I think what we're going to do is we'll we'll get the saga episodes out on time. Uh, We'll be gone till February 4th. And then we will maybe record a bonus Sundance episode for the listeners. Oh, are we doing this kind of programming while while recording? That's dangerous. Yes. What if we promise something and don't deliver? Well, then they, you know, that, that's part of the listeners relationship. Our will be very disappointed. <laughs> well, anyway, I don't know. We'll talk about that, Lisa. When we're not we're not podcasting. Privately. Yeah, privately, privately. <laughs> In um, our boudoir, Contessa. Yes. You can follow our Sundance adventures through In the Mouth of Dorkness, our other podcast. That's who we're reporting for. We might have a few things also going up on Film School Rejects, One Perfect Shot. So stay tuned. And After Movie Diner. And After Movie Diner. So, uh, yeah, exciting days ahead for CBCC. But uh, enough of uh, about the future. Let's talk about the now. Let's talk about the present. Let's get back to Saga. This week we're discussing, as Lisa said in the intro, Saga Volume 3, which contains issues 13 through 18. Yes. Okay, okay. Uh, buckle in because, you know, a, a lot goes on in Volumes 1 and 2, uh, but Volume 3 seems to be even more packed with plot. It is all plot. It's all plot. Every other, like, every other page turn is, like... A new scene, new set of characters, not new characters, but you know. Well, there's some new characters. Some new in characters. fact, issue 13 starts off with an introduction of two new characters. Oh, yeah, Upshur and Doff. Yes, reporter, photojournalist, tabloid, uh, yellow journalists. Uh, another couple. Another couple, yeah. Could we yeah. do an Upshur and Doff episode? I think we could. I think we could. They're adorable. Uh, so volume two ended on quite a cliffhanger. Uh, Prince Robot 4 is on quietus, viciously interrogating paperback novelist D. Oswald Heist, believing that Marco and Alana were on their way since he was the creator of the novel that philosophically united them. Uh, what was that book called, Lisa? A Nighttime Smoke. Yeah, for whatever reason, I can never remember that title. Because um, nobody smokes anymore. And so nobody has a nighttime smoke because it's gross. Oh, is that what it is? Okay, that's why I can't remember. All right. Uh, But little does Prince Robot realize, but Marco, Alana, Isabel, Clara. I felt judging of smoking people. You, you, yeah, you were being very judgmental. I take it back. If you're a smoker, it's it's your body, your choice. Yeah. Okay, good. Way to be progressive, Lisa. I'm trying my hardest. (laughs) So anyway, the family is upstairs in the lighthouse attic, unbeknownst to Prince Robot. And that's how volume two ended. Um, Now, now, volume three, just like volume two, does a little bit of a rewind at the beginning. As we said, we meet Upshur and Doff. Um, they are investigating the possible uh, kidnapping of a Lanfalian soldier by a Rethan soldier. But as they pursue this story, they begin to believe that these two enemies have coupled. And so the reporters are in hot pursuit. Right. Marco, he has grown a really gnarly beard. He's having a mini depression since his father's death. Alana believes that meeting author uh, D. Oswald Heist will knock him out of his funk. And Clara, the in-law, <laughs> thinks it's a stupid idea. But if they're determined to kill themselves, uh, she might as well join them and die together as a family Criticizing the whole time, like a real mother-in-law. <laughs> Not my mother-in-law. Uh, no, my mother-in-law is also great. 
let's not let's not let's not besmirch the ideas of mother-in-law. Yeah. If you're going to be nice to smokers, I'm going to be nice to in-laws. Oh, that's that is completely the same. <laughs> uh, we also have uh, an issue dealing with the Will and Gwendolyn and Slave Girl. They have crash landed on a paradise planet uh, that that kind of like contaminates their minds with dangerous hallucinations. Well, it's the food like the food has some kind of. Like poison inside, in yeah. So the will starts to see the stock. Slave girl sees her mother, and then these visions urge them to cause each other harm. And slave girl stabs the will in the neck, and Gwendolyn uh, decides that the only way to save the will is to find Marco and use his spell to bring him back to life. Uh, and then now we get back to Quietus. We see the drunk and very lonely D. Oswald Heist for the first time. Uh, and he's not really the philosophical genius that we were hoping to discover. Not when he's in the bottom of a bottle, he ain't. No. Heist is a bit of a drunk and a loner in total misery. But he, he perks up and sobers up when company comes a calling. Yeah, especially when that company is Clara, uh, who also finds herself being incredibly attracted to him, despite the fact that her husband has just died like an issue ago. But then there's Isabella, the ghost, encouraging Clara to find love where she can, because I guess after all, it's a, uh, it's hell out there. It's a war. Uh, yeah. Love the one you're with. Uh, it's all fun and games until Prince Robot 4 shows up during the interrogation, which we caught a little bit of in the end of the last volume. Heist teaches the prince that fucking is the opposite of war. I second that. Not peace. Uh, Robot admits that in his mind, when he faced death in combat, he did not see his life flash before his eyes, but the act of sex. And not only the act of sex with one individual, but an orgy with his entire platoon. That's what uh, flashes before his eyes right before death. And he seems to come to some sort of... Um, I don't know, uh, an awakening, a personal awakening in that conversation with Heist. Now, Clara storms downstairs, brandishing a battle axe. Robot shoots her. Heist shoots Robot. Gwendolyn arrives on Quietus, kicks down the door, and uses the Will's lance to poke out Heist's brains. Right through the giant eye. Poor sad sack, we barely knew ye. Uh, Gwendolyn confronts Marco and Alana at the top of the lighthouse. She's disgusted to see Marco in the arms of a winged creature. At gunpoint, uh, she gets the spell to cure the will, but apparently it won't work on a non-Rethan. At this knowledge, Gwendolyn fires a lance to kill them both. Marco pushes Alana off the balcony with Hazel, hoping her wings will work. And they do. Alana flies up and puts a gun on Gwendolyn. Robot is mind wiped after taking a shot to the stomach. Uh, and his, his screen cracks. His screen cracks. And he is susceptible to instruction from Isabel, who tells Robot to carry Clara's body out of the burning lighthouse and then wanders off into the waste of quietus. The will ends up in a landfallian hospital, his sister, the brand, a.k.a. Sophie, poisons Upshur and Doff so that they never can repeat the story they've gathered. Uh, if they do tell this crazy story of uh, Romeo and Juliet like love, they will literally die in the telling. 
And then uh, Hazel's narration says that it would be a long time before they were ever saw their original pursuers again. Boom. Time jump. Last page sees a toddler Hazel stepping off her wooden rocket ship underneath the uh, slightly older legs of Alana. Some time has passed. Alana's hair has kind of grown out. Kind of grown out. Yeah. yeah. So time jump, that's like a huge revelation at the end of this book. Yeah, it is. Almost as big of a cliffhanger as volume two. It, 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 personally, I feel that way. Don't you? Do you? Yeah, sure, 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 sure. I say A-plus on that plot synopsis. You did not miss a beat. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of plot, like we were saying. Um, but, boy, boy I, I, I just really, really enjoyed this volume. It certainly opens up the world of Saga. It's uh, living up to its title. It's no longer just a story about Marco and Alana. It's a surprise that it's going to span more of Hazel's life. Like, you see this first jump, and you know, oh, time means... Yeah, exactly. I I think when I first started reading this book, I just assumed the entire saga would take place within the years of, you know, uh, pre-toddler Hazel. So to suddenly see her as uh, a toddler at the end of this book, now you're thinking, hold on, we've been getting this narration of Hazel's since the beginning. Are we going to eventually get to adult Hazel? That blows my mind. It's I think I think it will certainly happen. How much time do you really think has passed? Like when does a when does a baby start walking? Like well, 18 months? I have no idea. Yeah, I no, didn't even either. have any siblings, Lisa. You had siblings. You had a younger brother. You should know. But I was four when John was born. Yeah, but you got nieces and nephews. You're paying attention to what they're doing. I'm really not. I'm certainly not. That's for sure. Uh Bonnie walks. Bonnie is less than two years old. Okay. So we're thinking, what, two years have passed? Since the beginning of the book. I don't, I don't think one. we're going to be really able to answer that question until we read the fourth volume, which I'm dying to jump to. But we can't. We can't. This is still week three. We got to talk about this volume, Lisa. Yeah, we do. How are we going to do that? I don't know. How about some research, research man? Oh, okay. Well, I can do that. I did read a couple interesting interviews that Brian K. Vaughn did. One of them was with the USA Today, conducted by Brian Truitt of the Mothership Podcast. Love that podcast. This was one done in 2013, right after the conclusion of Volume 2, but before the publication of Issue 13, which kicks off Volume 3. Um, in it, Brian K. Vaughn reiterates that D. Oswald Heiss, the paperback novelist that we all love, and that brought Marco and Alana together, is not based on any particular real-life writer. He rejects comparisons to both Alan Moore because of Heist's beard and Warren Ellis because of all his swearing. Um, he states that uh, seeking out a writer for answers just because they wrote a great book is probably a bad idea. And based on his own experiences, writers can never explain beyond what they have written. Take them at their story and move on. I found that he's really deprecating about writers, which I find super fun. And I feel like uh, there's like one moment where D. Oswalt Heist is like, I'm afraid of artists. And I was like, I bet you that tickled Fiona Staples when she was reading that script and drawing that. Yeah, and I feel like it's an inside joke. When but. you listen to interviews with Brian K. Vaughn, you know, people love Vaughn. We love Vaughn. Uh, but he's constantly reiterating to the interviewer, this is a collaboration with Fiona Staples. And so a lot of the things that you are loving about this book come directly from her. 
That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. That also being said, he is a big idea writer. He likes to tackle the idea of apocalypse because of social ills. So I'm sure people come up to him and want to talk philosophy with him. And maybe sure. he's just not open to sure. it. Sure. But you know, he does reveal in uh not this interview, but in another one I read. And actually I think he talks about it at the end of the uh giant hardcover, if you have the book one. Yeah, we do. At the end of that, there's a, a uh where he takes the reader through the entire process of making one issue. He says in that um uh, postscript that the flashbacks of volume two were there because of Fiona Staples. She wanted to show the audience the meaning of Marco and Alana. That was not his original intent. Oh, interesting. Yeah, definitely a collaborative effort. Uh, and I love that he's constantly reminding interviewers that's how comics are made. And the second interview that I was taking a look at was with fatherly.com. Don't worry, Lisa. <gasps> I am doing this strictly for saga research. I have no surprises Very for you. Very good. I would hate for you to be harboring fatherly emotions. <laughs> or you have some kind of secret love child. Well, this interview was done two years ago. Uh, I just caught that, Lisa. No, I don't have any secret love child. Yay. Uh, th- yeah, so this was done two years ago, uh, a little further into the story than we are currently. Uh, but don't worry, we're not going to spoil anything. But one thing Vaughn mentions is that Marco is sort of based on his wife and that Alana tends to share a lot of Vaughn's traits. Saga is a reflection of his relationship, and he purposely wanted to gender flip the personalities shared by himself and his wife. Uh, maybe he was doing that just to mess with our whole men are from Mars, women are from Venus approach, Lisa? Maybe, but maybe actually uh, personalities are not gendered. Hmm. Well, but we're reading men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and we are going to apply it to volume three again. Again. (laughs) Our love expert for Marco and Alana is still John Gray, PhD, several large red asterisks following that. Yeah, I'm going to put it out there to our listeners right now. Um, we've just sort of been selecting the cliche relationship books to go along with our couples. But if you have books that you truly think are helpful and accurate to the relationships of loved ones, let us know. We would love to. I mean, I would say that two books hardly establishes a pattern. I'm just saying that five love languages and men are from Mars, women are from Venus, are extremely questionable material. Yeah, yeah, that's not untrue. But it's also been kind of fun uh, dragging them a little bit. Absolutely. (laughs) So this volume, we're going to be applying Chapter 9, How to Avoid Arguments. Oh, I am looking forward to this one. Yeah, so... Just to define what an argument is, an argument is any... Shut up, Lisa! Oh, An argument is any kind of conversation (laughs) where um, the tactic is to hurt the other person's feelings. Like I just tried. Yeah, and it did hurt actually kind of a little. (laughs) I I was teasing, but then immediately I got the devil eyes from you. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Okay, no jokes on podcast. Was that an apology? That wasn't an apology. I'm sorry, Lisa. Thank you, my love. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... He starts out by saying, as a basic guideline in any relationship, just never argue. Okay, that's that sounds good. Let's you, do that. You can discuss the pros and cons of something. You can negotiate, but be open and honest 
and even express negative feelings. Just don't argue or fight. Okay. I mean, that sounds easy. Don't argue. Got it. I wish it was that easy, but the problem is men and women, since they're from different planets and Mm. they cannot relate to each other at all, the way they try to communicate each other accidentally instigates hurt instead of real communication. Uh, Explain that to me. To John Gray, he sees arguments as very formulaic. So what happens is a man feels challenged. Uh Uh-huh. So he becomes focused on being right, but forgets to be loving. So he speaks in an uncaring manner and goes on to explain why she should not be upset with him and negating the woman's feelings. The woman then feels challenged, so she becomes mistrusting and rejecting. And if we think about last week and a man's primary love needs, the like top ones are trust and acceptance. Mm-hmm. So these these arguments escalate because women start sharing their negative feelings and giving the ever forbidden unsolicited advice. Oh, yeah, because that's, you know, I'm slaying dragons. That's right. And I don't want to hear how you would slay a dragon. I I slay dragons my own way. And if your way works, then I can never go back to slaying dragons the way I used to do it. Even though our ideas have a 100% success rate. Anyway, so there are four ways of avoiding hurt and avoiding arguments that are actually counterproductive. Okay. Two of them come from Mars. (laughs) Okay. Two of them come from Venus. So let's see if you're paying attention. I'll let you decide which one comes from Mars and which one comes from Venus. Okay. So number one is to fight. That comes from Mars. Yeah, it does. That He's comes the god from of Mars. war. So. <laughs> and so fighting is um, making it a win-lose situation. Okay. By pre- presenting what you see as facts and minimizing the other person's argument. Okay. Number two is flight. Mars oh, well, Venus. That, what a woman. Woman loves to flee. Actually, that one is also what? from Mars because it is passive aggressive. It's like a Cold War kind of thing oh, to do. Oh, okay. So rather. That's my cave talk. That's, that's, that's the caveman going back. He doesn't want to talk to you. Exactly. He wants to shut up and be left alone. So he withdraws and withholds love. And then she feels like to get what she needs, she has to concede her side of the argument. Okay. Um, number three is to fake. Is that from Mars or is that from That's Venus? That's from Venus. That's from Venus. Women are fakers. And I actually found an example of that in this book. Oh, yeah? So if you think about um, their very first argument about Hazel's name and how he said oh, it mm-hmm, should be Barr. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and she just said, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah that's yeah. a great idea. And then prayed that the, the child would be born a girl. Exactly. So mm-hmm. that, What a faker. <laughs> what a faker. So the problem with faking is that Resentment builds because you're using all of this extra effort to fake being happy with whatever upset your feelings. And yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is to fold. Is folding from Mars or is folding from Venus? Well, women love to fold clothes and stuff. So (laughs) Venus. That's right. Alana does love to fold clothes and women love to fold in an argument. So that means to stop the arguing, you concede your side. But then again, resentment, all of those hurt feelings stay. I can't tell if my commentary on this makes me a jerk or John Gray a jerk. Both? 
<laughs> what I see in this chapter is that a lot of his observations are actually like his suggestions for how to deal with an argument are actually really helpful. Yeah, but they're not gendered. But exactly, if he had not gendered them. I think that there are there are situations and arguments that we've had where we've been on either side. We've been the person who has been hurt feelings and have been the person who's trying to be right. Three weeks into this conversation about John Gray and Marco and Lana, and what I come away with is that John Gray loved his metaphor too much. The metaphor's dumb. He should have just ditched it, not worried about the male-female thing, and just talked to these issues using his very basic common sense conversation. That's probably true. But keep in mind, he sold millions of books. And we're still talking about his dumb book today. Yeah. You're welcome. So let's get into the nitty gritty of what he considers the anatomy of an argument. So an argument generally starts with a woman asking a rhetorical question, such Uh, as... Hold on, hold on, hold on. This is... How every argument starts? According to John Gray, yes. Uh, So you just need to stop asking me rhetorical questions, Lisa. (laughs) Maybe. All right, give me your example. This is absurd. So um, he gives several examples. Let's just start with with number one. When he comes home late. Oh, yeah, I do like coming home late. So she'll ask a rhetorical question such as, how could you be so late? Or why didn't you call? Or... (laughs) What am I supposed to think when you're staying out so late? So the message he hears is there is no good reason for you to be out late. You are irresponsible. I would never be late. I am better than you. Uh, okay. (laughs) I don't know, Lisa. Okay. So he then starts going into explanation mode. There was a lot of traffic on the bridge. Sometimes life can't be the way you want. You can't expect me to always be on time. John Gray's great at writing jerks, that's for sure. It is very true. The message she hears, she hears him saying, you shouldn't be upset because I have all of these good and logical reasons for being late. Anyway, my work is more important than you and you are way too demanding. So then he has his little um, explanations of how she could be less disapproving and he could be more validating. Because, of course, men need approval and women need validation. So she could say, I really don't like it when you're late. It is upsetting to me. I would really appreciate a call next time you're going to be late. Uh huh. And then the way he can be more validating is, I was late. I'm sorry I upset you. Uh huh. Here's a, I'm just going to read a direct <laughs> quote now. <laughs> Most important is to listen without explaining much. Listen so, without explaining much. Right. I mean, that is a challenge. I mean, e- even in this podcast, it's a challenge to hear what you are saying and not wanting to jump right into every thought you have because I am uh, an interrupter. We know that. But I do the same thing. Yeah, you do. The so, listeners know it too. He has another um, example of an argument where I can re- remember specific conversations, not conversations, specific arguments 
you have had where we have flipped roles, where I have been. Ooh, I want to hear this. The Venusian and where you have been the Venusian. Do you have notes on that? Do you have, are you, are you going to lay down some truth on our, on me and my, on the listeners? Yeah, I am. Oh, God. Ho- hopefully you can go there with me. Oh, okay. This is going to be interesting. Let's see if it survives the edit. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to use, okay, so I'm going to number seven. When she feels invalidated in a conversation. Okay. Okay. When she feels invalidated in a conversation. Got right. it. So her rhetorical question is, why did you say that? Why do you have to talk to me this way? Or you don't even care about what I'm saying. How can you say that? So the specific argument I'm thinking of is actually saga related. Oh, no. Do you want to go there? We don't have to go all the way. No, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we can okay. talk about it. So I am an asshole. <laughs> I'm just going to precursor this conversation with Brad's a jerk, and I am sorry, and I have regrets. This argument was many years ago in our marriage, at least seven years ago. Don't you think? Because we've been doing book club for like seven uh, years. Yeah, it was, I think this first year of book club. So yeah, seven years ago. Okay. We, we host a, a graphic novel book club. Now, listeners, you have to imagine a time, because this is true, where I was really shy and self-conscious about sharing my opinions about art and movies because... You thought you were not a geek. You used to say that all the time. I'm not a geek like you. Yeah, I felt very, and I was saying that in like a self-conscious, sad way where I'm like, well, well, this is a Venusian need for validation. I thought because I wasn't necessarily raised with comic books that my opinion on comic books was not valid. So it was a, it came from a need for validation. But I, I was really self-conscious about my opinions. And so we... In our first year, we did volumes one and two of Saga. Right. And Brad and I, we both loved Saga. Yeah. I had recommended the book, I believe. Yeah, it was your I was already a fan, and I knew you would like it. And I did. Until volume four, to be continued. And so um, we're both going into this meeting going like, we love this book. Everybody's going to love this book. And our group at that time was about 15 people. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 15 people. And um, I put a lot of effort into those initial meetings. I was the one who came up with the discussion questions and all of that stuff. Big, so, thick packet. Yeah. Staples and everything. Yeah. So, coloring page. Yeah. I always include a coloring page. I think that's very important. Character list. Uh-huh. <laughs> Massive. Yes. I, I list everybody who's mentioned my name. Anywho. So we go into the discussion, the group discussion of Saga, and- one of Brad's very close friends who can be a bit of a contrarian. If he's listening, he knows who he is and we still love you. But he did not like Saga. And he was making, he was complaining about it, making some kind of, you know, observations of how he felt about the book. And the group turned on him. Yeah. Big time. Big time. And Brad, being a good friend to this guy... Yeah, I'm, I'm a swell fella. ...decided to back up his friend. I mean, I, I, I was defending his point of view. I was playing devil's advocate. Well, I took that as... Now, <laughs> oh Brad is a turncoat, and he was hiding his true feelings uh-huh. about the book. 
so that I looked like an idiot in front of all of my friends, and I was upset. Uh, I mean, you were really mad. You were visibly mad uh, through the rest of that conversation. You were sending some serious dagger looks my way, and it was uncomfortable. Yeah. So after our guests leave... Everyone except the, the, the one person who didn't like Saga, my buddy. Who needed a ride home. Yeah. So here's where the argument starts. So my rhetorical question was... And I'm doing dishes. You're doing dishes. I'm my, washing up. Okay, I'm going to the... Um, the book now? The book now. I'm going to use <laughs> his little formula. All right. So my rhetorical question was, why would you change the way that you thought about Saga in the context of the meeting? That was my rhetorical question. Why did you change your opinion? What you heard was, is there was no good reason to back your friend. Yeah, to defend him. Because it's, there was no reason to defend him. You don't care about me. And <sighs> I give you so much and you, and you give me nothing. Uh -huh. So that's what you hear. Yeah. And so you explain. Uh, oh, okay. That I was backing my friend, and those weren't necessarily my opinions. I was playing devil's yeah, advocate. Yeah, yeah. Explanations, explanations. Yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So what you did I, not like that response. So what I hear is, you don't have a right to be upset. You are being irrational. Uh, yeah, I, and I was implying that. Yeah. And actually, you were probably right. <laughs> you were probably right. So, and, but then we started shouting at each other in front of our buddy. Yeah, we did. It was and, really and it, I, and it I, was really out of character for us. And I threw a glass. Yeah. You weren't yeah. going to say that, were I you? wasn't going to say that. I, I had a plastic cup, and I threw it across the room in frustration, and it hit our television set. And it did shatter our television set, but it left a massive scratch. Yeah, it scuffed it. We yeah. had a scuff. And it terrified our buddy there because he had never seen me or you that angry before. And we never really were that angry before that. And we've never really actually been that angry again. Yeah. Which yeah. was. I it, can't believe I threw that class. It's so embarrassing. But I can't believe we're talking about it on this podcast. I know. I have a lot of social anxiety issues and I'm still dealing with them. I, I bet you our buddy is still dealing with them <laughs> after that argument. <laughs> But according to John Gray, how I should have started that conversation was I was upset that you took your buddy's side in the saga conversation because I felt that you were in turn rejecting my side, which and, was the right side. And what we should have done was communicate silently via text to each other. During the meeting. During and the meeting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is what we do now. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Tactics. Now, according to John Gray, what you should have said okay. after I started uh, the argument more rationally this. is that I'm sorry that you felt that way. I will try to be more considerate of you in the future. And I understand why your feelings were hurt. Okay. And then <laughs> you listen to me and let me vent all of my feelings out until I am a deflated Venusian. And I shouldn't have taken everything so personally and not allowed myself to reach rage level glass throwing. <laughs> right. Because that's what a child does. Right. Now, let's do the other argument. Another, where, we're going to go over another argument that we've had? Where you were the Venusian. Okay. And I was the 
and inconsiderate can't, Martian. Can't we just talk about Marco and Alana? No, Brad, we're going to acknowledge how I also can be insensitive <laughs> and you also can be vulnerable. Okay, okay, all right. Okay. Let's do it, let's do it. So this this argument was one that was actually more recent. So um, if you can time travel back with me, we were standing in the entrance of the Alamo Draft House. We had just come out of film club. We do a lot of clubs. We do graphic novel book club. We do film club. We were socialites. Yeah, we are. And um, we were standing in a circle and all of the film club people were there. And you were talking about an interview you had done or an article you had written. I literally can't remember what it was about. I I remember this. I remember this. I I can't remember what the heck the article was, though. I know. Oh, I wish you held on to shit like I do. Sorry. (laughs) I let it go. But you were doing, like, you were holding court, talking about whatever (laughs) your thing was. Uh Uh-huh. And I interrupted you to give my dissenting opinion or whatever. And whatever it was just took the wind out of your sails. Yeah, gosh, I wish I could remember what that was. I remember this because then we immediately left the group. We got in the car and we just started shouting at each other in the car. I remember that. We went into argument mode. Yeah. But I'm using that as, so your rhetorical question as a Venusian, your rhetorical question would be, why would you say that? Why would you diffuse my argument in front of yeah, yeah. all of the cool film club people? You castrated me. And <laughs> my my Martian thing to do would be to start explaining why. And you did. I, I remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gosh, yeah, yeah. Why, like, well, I had... I have every legitimate right to say whatever my opinion is, whatever I want to, no matter whose turn it is to talk. It ended in tears. And so um, what you heard was, I don't care what your feelings are because I just wanted to say the thing I wanted to say. And so how you could have been less disapproving would have been to say, I wish you wouldn't interrupt me to deflate my arguments when we're talking with the film club people. And I could have been more validating by waiting till you were done talking to, to share what I had to share. Okay. Hmm. That was a way less exciting conversation than the time I was a Venusian, but <laughs> being a Venusian, no glasses got thrown. No glasses got thrown. We really, you know, we're making it sound like we argue all the time. We, we really don't argue that often, but when we do, we both hurt each other's feelings and odds are we both cry. Yeah, that's true. We're both big time powders. Yeah. Yep. 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 Well, you know, when we got married, your mom said it was going to be difficult for us because we were both two incredibly emotional people. Oh yeah. She did say that. She also said when we were both wearing our glasses, that we look like brother and sister. (laughs) (laughs) She did say that. Oh, mom. Oh boy. Okay. Talking about moms. Yeah. What a mom she is. Let's get back to saga, Lisa. This has been stressful. Yeah. I just find it funny that the argument from seven years ago, I'm like, I'm so shy about sharing my opinions. And then the argument from a year ago, it's like, I'm a brassy broad who's going to say what she's going to say. <laughs> yeah, growth. <laughs> growth? Yeah. I don't know. 
Let's get into the session. Let's get out of our session and get into session with Marco and Alana. All right. So, uh, you know, we went through that whole massive plot, uh, volume three. Uh, so much of the book doesn't actually revolve around Marco and Alana. And thankfully, because we've been drudging through our own marital problems, Lisa, we've taken up a lot of time and we don't need to worry about uh, the will and Gwendolyn and Prince Robot. Let's just focus on what's going on relationship-wise with Marco and Alana in Volume 3. Sure. I think it's super important to start with, to use a CBCC phrase, the book starts with Alana holding the spoon in their relationship because Marco is in this super dark place. He's lost his father, and he's not functioning. And she's having to take care of Hazel and and manage real quick though, for listeners that weren't with us in the big Barda scot-free conversation, what does it mean to hold the spoon, Lisa? So when one person in the relationship is going through some kind of mental breakdown or maybe doing some kind of major project where they're not there to keep the relationship functioning or, or they're not present to help with the day to dayness of being in a couple, the other person in the relationship is responsible for keeping things moving. Yeah, they have to step up. They have to hold the spoon. They have to hold the spoon. If you want to fully understand that metaphor, go back to our bonus episode on Mr. Miracle. Listen to that. Yeah, I think if we wanted to shorthand it, like the stew of a relationship has got to keep moving because if it's on the stove and it's not moving, it's going to stick to the bottom of the pan and you're going to have a crusty, burnt stew. Well, you've just changed the metaphor I for have. like the third time, I Lisa. Know. No, you can't do it. <laughs> Someone's got to hold the spoon. And in Saga Volume 3, at the start of it, Alana is having to hold the spoon. She's holding it. And the way she's doing that is by going, damn it, we're going to find D. Oswald Heist. He's the man that brought us together. His philosophy philosophy will bring us back from the brink of despair where we're currently occupying. That's right. That's right. She's stirring the stew. Damn it, Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) You're just making things more complicated, Lisa. All right, let's get back to it. Okay. They land on Quietus. They encounter those awesome, like, bone bug creatures. Yeah, they they bring, they reanimate dead Carcasses, and the, yeah, and they turn into these really gnarly Jim Henson like you know dark crystal type beasts. But I think it's interesting. Marco becomes preoccupied with caring for his mother because his mother happens to have her ear being gnawed off by like a reanimated skull, and it's up to Alana to defeat this big like. Yeah, she's got to go Luke Skywalker on this thing. Yeah. And, you know, they defeat this creature and then stumbling into the scenario is D. Oswald Heist and he's drunk. He's drunk and he's throwing some major red flags. But I think that Marco and Alana believe in his message so much and want to believe so badly he has the answers that they just kind of ignore the fact that he's puking on their baby. <laughs> that is a truly disgusting moment. Super nasty. And the moment you puke on my baby, uh, we're done. Yeah. Get I don't back care on, how many bestsellers you wrote. Get back on that wooden rocket ship and get in that sweet, <laughs> sweet shower. Yeah. Shower. Yeah. But they don't. They don't. They go to his lighthouse. 
Because he does have first aid, and that's how Marco explains it to Clara, who does not want to go back Clara's, with... Clara's not happy with where anyone's going at writers, this point. Writers don't make the best first impressions. Right, 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 right. But Heist is just so taken by the existence of Hazel and the idea of a Landfallian and a Rethian could really get the message of his book. So, like... He didn't mean to puke on the baby. No, and, uh, you know, he's super flattered. So, yeah, come on back to my place. Let's hang out. Yep. I think it's interesting that Hazel was named after a character in the book. I thought that that was, like, a fun reveal, that Hazel was named after the li- – not a character in the book, after the librarian that recommended – Yeah, uh, everything goes back to this novel. I mean, it was a uh, an epiphany for both characters, you know, the, the basis of their relationship, which we talked about in the last yeah, episode. And the genesis of this whole comic book series. Yeah, it's kind of sad considering how even though they did have some revelations and there are some upcoming storylines that come from them being on Quietus, it was kind of anticlimactic. Well, uh, Brian K. Vaughn doing what he does best, subverting expectation, Mm -hmm. right? You know, you spend two arcs getting to Quietus, and then uh, the guy who brought these kids all together is really not that impressive. Yeah. But he also sets up the fact of where they are going next. I guess Clara and Heist start um, bonding. Yeah. Uh, they, They start discussing the Battle of Cartwright, and even though they were both on opposite sides of that battle, um, Oswald starts talking about the loss of his first love, his first wife, because she 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 was a civilian, but she got hit by some kind of major explosive spell. And they had this really beautiful bonding conversation over what it's like to lose a love. Because he can tell by looking at her. They're both in hurt. Both of them are in hurt and they bond over that and they start conspiring together to manipulate where these children are going to go in volume four with the open circuit. Get Alana back to work. She needs to be shaking those tail feathers. Yeah, Clara, the in-law, does not like the fact that Alana is folded clothes and uh, trying to uh, live by the attitude of a nighttime smoke, This seeking the mundane life. Her son is meant for more, and certainly her grandchild is meant for more, and Alana is providing a bad example for Hazel, as, as, as Clara sees it. Yeah, a, a woman's place is in the workforce, she says. What I think what I think is like the real um, kicker of that little conversation is the fact that the reason they started that argument was to win the game noon to noon or <laughs> however you pronounce it, because it's just like crazy involved Rethian board game. Yeah, it's like Pictionary meets Trivial Pursuit meets some sort of personal grudge match. Yeah, and there's <laughs> arm wrestling involved. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, let's break down that argument a little bit. Yeah, let's let's see how this fight goes down. So, um, so it starts as a casual conversation. Alana is complimenting Clara on her being in such amazing shape because Alana is like super competitive, uh-huh. and so when they get to the arm wrestling round. Alana literally uses all of her strength to defeat her widowed mother-in-law 
in hand in arm <laughs> wrestling. And so she starts by saying, like, how do you stay in such amazing shape? And then Clara's like, well, not by folding other people's underwear. Boom. Boom. So then Alana asks a rhetorical question. What is that supposed to mean? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Right. We know what those are. Not good rhetorical them questions. Them fighting questions. <laughs> so then she says, she goes on to say, well, you're just being Marco's maid. You should be in the workforce setting a better example for, for Hazel. So then Alana gets defensive and asks another rhetorical question what gives you the right to tell me what kind of mom i'm supposed to be and then marco (laughs) starts uh trying to postpone this discussion peacekeeper can we finish can we finish this after the game but then she starts getting ganged up on because oswald sides with clara and she's like seriously you of all people like are telling me to like i read your book you know the Contessa was not in the workforce. And he was like, you read my entire book and what you got is everybody should just be lazy and do nothing. And so so then uh, Alana, it ends with um, the button in the argument that has Alana storming out of the room is uh, of course, Oswald saying the bomb phrase. Well, you have a family to think about now, which is one of her pet peeves. And, uh, she storms out of the room. Marco chases her and uh, and um, Clara, Clara yeah. and Oswald lean over the board game in victory. Noon, Tudge, noon. Yep, yep. Yeah, and then that conversation is picked up and resolved uh, like an issue later. Yeah, so Alana does an extremely Martian thing. She goes into her cave. She goes off to pout. But Marco finds her, and she tries to oh, yeah. distract from the conversation by offering oral satisfaction and uh, asking him if he'd like to come on her tits or her face. And Marco reminds her of the book, and the book says that there are only two kinds of people left in the world, consumers and destroyers and all of the creators are gone and he says well we can be creators we don't necessarily have to join the rat race of consumerism and we don't have to join the war and be destructive we can make something we could add something to the world and he uses an example as an example like we made hazel and the hazel's like amazing and she's like what do you want to monetize my uterus? <laughs> and he's like, no, it's just we we clearly work very well together. There is something we can find and do so that we can live, so that we can make money and survive and still have a beautiful adventure together. And I love this little panel. She says, this doesn't change my wedding vows. I'm still not doing the dishes. And he's like, I like doing dishes. I think that's cute because that's actually me and Brad's thing is – Brad does the dishes in our our home. I love the dishes. And you are so fucking sexy. Uh, when I'm doing dishes. Mm-hmm. Scrub a duck. <laughs> yeah, okay. So the plan that Clara and Oswald put together, they supplanted this idea, this thought of working in the open circuit that has sunk into the heads of Marco and Alana. Apparently, Alana had been harboring some kind of fleeting fantasy about becoming an actress on the open circuit. And the open circuit is basically soaps on the internet beamed intergalactically. And they're like interactive. Like 
the audience is there. And yeah, and, and sometimes the audience can get into the fray. Right. But Marco can't do it because he's a Rethian. So, and Lanfalians can't technically do it, but she can hide her wings e- easier than Marco can hide his enormous horns. So, so that's she, the plan. So the plan is, yeah. So she's going to audition for the open circuit and he's going to be the stay-at-home daddy, which I think is going to be a bone of contention later oh, in this. somebody knows already. <laughs> yeah. Of course, this being Saga, nothing happy can last for very long. And this is when Prince Robot Force shows up and starts torturing Oswald Heist. And uh, you know, Clara goes down with a battle axe to fight him off. And Marco and Alana run to the top of the lighthouse. And th- they're, at, they're, they're at the end. There's nowhere to go. They're going to jump to their deaths with Hazel, I guess. Well, he suggests that she take Hazel down and she can do it gently using her wings to glide down. But she's like... These are vestigial wings. And he's been sort of teasing her to use these wings for the first two arcs. And she keeps knocking him down, saying these wings are they're clipped. They're, they're not, they don't do anything. They're not clipped because clipped is like a process. Like like the, vestigial means like they're they're like an appendix. Like they don't do anything. Thanks for the definition, Lisa. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but Gwendolyn shows up and she's none too happy to see her ex with someone with wings. She's a little disgusted by the situation. But what she really wants is the spell to to cure the will. And she refers to the the will as the man she's fallen in love with. Yeah, she throws that in Marco's face. Do you think think that she is not in love with the will? I think she has complicated feelings with the will. I mean, they did share that kiss. The will certainly went in for some action and was denied. There is undeniable sexual tension. Right. That ghost spirits can see or hallucinations can see. They're pretty insightful. Hallucination yeah. slash ghost spirits. <laughs> um, but it turns out that since the will is not from Wreath, the snow thing doesn't work. Yeah. And so Marco doesn't really have any kind of solution. For but Alana that. says, look, there's a, a mash unit not too far from here. Oh, yeah, that's right. You can go there. And Gwendolyn is like, shut your trap. Yeah, she she's really disgusted at the idea that Marco has mated with a Lanfalian. Yeah, and, and hurt because by just, he kind of war ghosted her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and he broke her heart. Yeah, it's understandable from both points of view, maybe, but the way Gwendolyn is so disgusted there's like that racist tinge to her anger yeah that i was surprised at how hurt i was just by gwendolyn's reaction yeah because of this volume i really start to like gwendolyn as seen through the relationship with the will and slave girl aka sophie right but she has the same upbringing that marco had and Marco changes on because of, but Marco had Oswald Heist's uh, book. Yeah. Gwendolyn did. Maybe she should visit her local library and borrow some enlightenment. Uh, I don't think it would work on her, to be frank. Maybe not. So she instigates an argument with Alana. She calls her a homewrecker, I think, for the excuse of pulling the lance. Yeah, she's got the Will's lance. Yeah, she does. What a cool weapon. Because she's killed Heist already. Yeah, yeah, with it. Right through the eyeball. We already discussed it. So she calls her a homewrecker. Alana is like, why don't we just move on? And Gwendolyn pulls the lance. 
Marco anticipates that move and she shoves Alana and Hazel off of the lighthouse. Yeah, and they plummet. And they plummet, yeah. And Gwendolyn's pretty surprised by that. Yeah, she thinks that he killed them. (laughs) And he's like, well, it's better they die that way than have you kill them. And then what happens? And then Marco's like, well, I used to be angry, insecure, and selfish, but then I met Alana, so I'm sorry, so you might as well just kill me too to make things right. Which is, you know, she, she of course hears that and she's crushed because Alana is better for him as a person than I was. It makes her even more enraged. She's, she's like, you broke my fucking heart. And then. And then boom, flying above her is Alana. The wings are not just decorative, Lisa. They have a purpose. And she didn't just like float down to the bottom. She's like a, a freaking fairy. And she pulls the gun, gets the drop on Gwendolyn. And she delivers a non-fatal zap. Gwendolyn scurries away wounded. Alana comes down. She says to Marco, you know, how did you know I could do that? And Marco, the cool cat that he is, says, well, isn't it obvious you could do anything? Now, here's my question. Do you think that Marco really expected her and Hazel to pop back up? I think there was no other choice. So either they die together then or it does work. Yeah, because we actually skipped over this part. But like when they were both in the basement together and they weren't sure how they were going to get past Prince Robot 4, Marco's like, you might have to kill take, Hazel. Hazel, take care of Hazel. Yeah. And she's like, what? I'm not going to kill my baby. And he's like, because uh, he was raised on yeah, grief. Yeah, she's never going to make that decision, but he can. That's and he right. does. That's right. When so he pushes her over. <laughs> I think that he was ready for them to die in that moment. And he was ready to die in that moment. And luckily, those were not just decorative wigs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he gets to be all cool and uh, Mac Daddy about it. Yeah, I love the shot of his beautiful... Rethian gaze and the red lightning yeah, like in the background. it's Frank Miller Dark Knight Returns lightning bolt going right behind him. It's rad. He's dreamy. For sure, for sure. Uh, and that pretty much wraps up the Marco and Alana storyline. Like we said, the last page is a time jump. We now see Hazel as a toddler. We're going to jump ahead into the future of this relationship. So it's nice to think that between volumes three and four, maybe there were some happy times, although maybe there wasn't. Maybe we'll get some flashbacks to some dark stuff too. Odds are probably. (laughs) We did skip, we did get some background on Alana, a little bit more about Alana's childhood because Upshur and Dosh went to her home planet and met her stepmother who happens to be like a peer from summer camp or something. Yeah, that's a great moment. And then you get to see a photograph of their wedding day and you get to see Alana. Angsty teen. Yeah, angry as hell with her dad in the arms of this beautiful, uh, not co-worker, uh, happy camper. Yeah, uh, it turns out that Alana grew up with the dreamy dad. And super handsome, and that's a lot of pressure. And then also we learned that her mother had a tendency to pass out. Like, that was, like, a really fleeting comment that she made when they were talking about what were their experiences with the open circuit. And she said that she would watch the open circuit after her mother passed out. So clearly her mother had was a some, had issues. Yeah, yeah. I have 
have another question for you. Yeah. So if we go back to the interrogation scene with Prince Robot 4 and Oswald, and they start talking about his new book. And the opposite of war. The opposite of war is fucking. Do you agree with Oswald's theory that the opposite of war is fucking? Well, the idea being that uh, through sex is life and life is the opposite of death. I think that's how I interpreted it. Life is creative, but like orgies are not necessarily with all of your battalion mates is not necessarily Uh, life affirming, life giving. But I mean, it's also the idea of giving euphoria to others to give a transcendent experience it's the opposite of uh, eradicating a life destroying a life you're not destroying even in the act of lovemaking you are uh involved in creation or uh passion and it's the affirmation affirmation yeah and and not everybody dies in a war but everybody is devastated so it's it's the opposite of like devastation yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. Why, why? So why did you want to bring that up? It's clearly a conversation that Brian K. Vaughn wanted to instigate. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Oswald Heist's theories and philosophies are a driving force of Marco and Alana. And I'm sure this idea will come up, come up again because Prince Robot 4 is still out there. Sure. And also how sex is perceived and used is certainly a key to the next volume. Oh, yes. And I guess that's where we should put a button in our conversation for today. Uh, But Lisa, uh, you know, like we always want to end the CBCC show with how are we going to apply this arc to our relationship? What do we recognize from this relationship in in ourselves? I guess we saw some arguments, at least in the John Gray side things. We did see some arguments. Personal arguments. And they did show us what not to do (laughs) when we're arguing. Because I think particularly going back to the argument of who's going to enter the workforce, who's going to stay home. I think both of them are harboring feelings and emotions that. They still haven't dealt with. Yeah, and these issues are going to arise later. Yeah, despite the time jump. Exactly. So when we argue, we'll not be like Marco and Alana. We'll take the time to lay all of our emotional cards on the table. And from John Gray, I'm not going to ask any rhetorical questions. (laughs) Well, I think that reading that argument chapter from Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus... If you de-genderize it and you think of times when you're like times when I'm arguing with you or like I have that kind of sudden flare up of emotion. I think it would actually be more useful for me to say. I just had a flare up. I I had this emotion and I need you to explain to me what you meant by that last thing that you said. Mm. And, and you could do the same thing. When you find yourself wanting to ask a rhetorical question, what did you mean by that? Going to, yeah. instead, instead of leading with the question, leading with a, I am now feeling this. Can you explain what you meant by that? And I will try to be cool about it. Well, I think that's trying to be cool about it. That's the key. Uh, for me, once I, you know, 
get to 10, it's hard to come back down. And I think once I do reach a level of anger uh, or frustration that's hot, that, yeah. that, that, that burns, you need to take a moment and go and cool down, recognize why you're in this relationship in the first place, <laughs> why you love this beautiful person across from you, and, and return to that conversation from a cool, calm, and collected place. And when you see your partner... Like if I see, cause when I see 10 coming sometimes, or when you see me getting upset, the first inclination is to be defensive. Yeah. Like I did not mean to get you upset. Like I was I, from my side of the conversation, I was just saying something flip or whatever. Yeah. The reality is, is you're going to have arguments and you just have to recognize that they're going to happen and you need to, you know, you basically, you need to get through them and, 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 and not worry about it. That's and, not what I want to say. What, uh, well, to me, like, the thing is, if you see a flare-up in your partner, the first thing is to say, I'm sorry I made you feel this way. And diffuse the emotion before getting to the defensive Yeah, It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah, it is hard, but... But the opposite of arguing is fucking. Oh. And you can only get to fucking if you get through the argument. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think we've solved all relationships. But no, we're we only can. on week three of Saga. By week four, we'll fix everything. Sounds good. And what is week four again, Brad? So we are going to jump right into volume four, which contains issues 19 through 24. I'm excited to talk about this arc because it is the one that originally infuriated Lisa so much that she bailed on the series as a whole. Yes, I did. And once we get done with volume four, everything in Saga will be new to you. And I feel ready for it, unless I'm completely offended afresh. No, I think you're going to really dig it once we get into volume five. But before we do that, like I said at the start of the episode, we are heading next week to Park City, Utah for the Sundance Film Festival. As you're listening to this, uh, we will be gearing up for our flight. Um, and yeah, like I, 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 Lisa, I'm, I'm pretty certain that the first week of February, we're going to record a special on site at <gasps> Sundance bonus episode. And, uh, the second week of February, we will be able to get to our next comic book couple, but no spoilers this episode. You'll have to tune in next week to find out where we're going to after Marco and Alana, and we'll get back to volume five sometime later in the year. That's right. And that point, I'll be dying to get on to volume five. <laughs> okay, Lisa. So where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you this week? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter and Instagram. Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me every day online at MouthDork on all social medias. And of course, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at cbccpodcast. And you can commit to our podcast by subscribing on iTunes and Spotify. And you can give us the gift of five stars. Five stars only. On the iTunes reviews, five stars only, please. So until next time, folks, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.